Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Tara Boyce, recovering alcoholic, former unrequited love junkie, and mostly assembled jigsaw puzzle. So this is a podcast that's part audiobook, part Q&A. Basically, I read a chapter of my memoir I've written about alcoholism and try to answer your questions to the best of my ability and really just try to be part of a discussion about addiction and mental health and most importantly, recovery from those things. If this is your first time here, that's awesome. I'm so glad to have you. But I would encourage you to go back to the first few episodes so you have an idea of what's going on in the story. I'm not going to directly answer any questions today because I have a lot to cover in framing the next chapter. So, so far I've talked about alcoholism, sure, but also perfectionism, depression, suicide, eating disorders, and now I'm launching into problematic relationships. And my inner critic is saying, stay on topic, woman. This is about alcoholism. But then I ask myself, well, what was my alcoholism about? And these concurrent issues are very much a part of that. Not every chapter will focus on alcohol specifically, but a lot of these other developmental disruptions are what I used alcohol to medicate in the first place. The next chapter is going to dive into a part of my life in which my love addiction, intertwined with my alcoholism, took over. This is a memoir through the lens of alcoholism. However, I am an all-dressed pizza of problematic relationships, with alcohol, with food, with people, with my own mind. I have an alcohol addiction, I have eating disorder patterns, I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety disorder, borderline personality disorder. I'm not really sure if I agree with all these diagnoses now, but I sure did at the time. I also struggle with love addiction or codependency, whatever you want to call it. It has different names. When I was in school for writing, it was drilled into me that a book has to have a primary conceit. It has to be about one thing primarily. Two of my favorite authors wrote separate memoirs about their experience with alcoholism and anorexia, and one wrote a third about bipolar disorder. Personally, I think it's a bit condescending to the reader or listener in this case to assume that you'll get confused if I'm talking about separate issues. Because that's the thing, they're not separate issues. I honestly can't think of a single person I met in rehab or recovery who didn't also have a problem with either mental health, food, relationships, or all of the above. It would be dishonest for me to not mention these things. As humans, we're not separate parts working independently. A major barrier to recovery can be that Someone might see a specialist who will focus on one thing or the other, neglecting how interwoven those patterns are. It's easy to start to believe, well, if I could just get my mental health together, then I wouldn't need to drink. Until then, I'm just self-medicating because these doctors aren't that great at it. Or if I got my underlying mental health issues resolved, then I could drink normally. Or I'm only obsessing over my weight because I don't feel lovable. Once someone else loves me, then I'll love myself, or this relationship is going to save me from my alcoholism, or my mental health issues mean I'll never be able to stop drinking, or now that I'm sober, it's okay to stop eating, or I know I'm in rehab, but what I really need to get out of here is a boyfriend. I started to see myself as this collection of separate broken parts, rather than parts that only seemed broken because I hadn't figured out how to fit them together. 
I spoke in a previous chapter about how the eating disorder was a smokescreen for my alcoholism, but they were both a response to the same psychic emptiness I felt. The only reason I think that alcoholism won over an eating disorder in terms of what got to devastate my life is because it was easier for me. It was easier to ingest something than to deny myself something. Self-control was not my forte. The relationship problems increased with my own self-loathing and my need for somebody else to validate me and rescue me. All the psychiatric diagnoses were tainted by, but also inseparable from my alcohol abuse because I was never sober enough long enough to know if that person still qualified for them. There was no long-term sober version of me. That person had yet to exist. Two-year sober me doesn't seem to have full-blown borderline personality disorder, but drinking me certainly does, and even freshly sober me checks all those boxes. So I want to honor the people I know in recovery who do have the associated troubles with being human that most addicts do by not pretending this is a one-issue thing. We are not one-issue people. However, I don't feel like I can talk about recovery from these other issues as comprehensively as alcoholism because alcohol was the thing that was killing me, therefore that is what I got treatment for. It turned out when I had a recovery practice that worked, that was effective for alcoholism, it was also pretty effective for managing my other challenges, even though they still require management. They didn't just go poof the moment I put down the bottle. Evidence of this is all over my history of uh, naughty behavior in rehab. So I will be referring to outside issues as they sometimes refer to them in recovery circles. And I'm not going to apologize for that, though I do apologize if my expertise or vernacular for those subjects are not quite up to par. Maybe you can help educate me if I miss the mark. Especially with the codependency issues, I never copped to having a problem with that, no matter how irrational and destructive my behavior was in that respect. But hey, you can judge for yourself. So, without further exposition, I bring you Chapter 5, Addicted to Love. Returning to Montreal with my tail between my legs, my dream of Broadway stardom dead at my feet... It seemed the most reasonable thing to do was to go about my business like nothing had happened. I just went back to my old job at the ice cream store up the street from my house and decided to funnel all my emotional and mental resources into what would really solve all my problems. Getting someone else to fall in love with me. My choice of knight in shining armor left something to be desired. He was a brooding bottle blonde who played in a grunge band, and the Kurt Cobain imitation was not subtle. He thought depression was sexy, and apparently so did I. Oh, and he usually only called me when he was having a fight with his girlfriend. In my defense, they did break up, but then got back together. And at no point during that break did he make a move on me with ample opportunity and you'd think that would have been the decisive red light on this road to romance. But what should have concerned me even more was that he didn't seem to like me very much. When we hung out, I sometimes got the impression he'd only agreed to the invitation because he had exhausted his own budget for beer. 
Other times, one or two of his friends would show up with him, ruining my romantic illusions that we were having a date. I even suspected he might have been trying to pawn me off on one of them. Well, especially the time when I made plans with him and one of his friends showed up instead. Sometimes we'd meet up and he'd practically ignore me, diddling with the video lottery machine and chatting with the bartender while I sat perched and perky with my cutest outfit and meticulously applied makeup practically wagging my tail for attention. Granted, some of those times were times when I'd just shown up when I knew he was finishing his shift, not when we'd had any plans, but hey, what did he expect when he got a job at the pub a five-minute walk away from my house? He was practically begging to be stalked. Objectively, I didn't actually spend much time with Shane, but we were having a full-on relationship in my mind. He'd burned me a CD of Silverchair's new album, and I listened to it on loop, merging the diorama of emotions I felt from the music with my feelings for him. It was a technique I'd been practicing mindlessly since I was a kid, linking powerful sensations from music with an object of my affection, a kind of neuro-linguistic programming for overblown infatuation that I mistook for love, my passion for music fusing with my idea of a person. I still can't listen to that album without being helplessly washed over with feelings about him that I no longer have. Had I known how susceptible my mind was to such manipulations, I might have dialed it down. Mm, no, I wouldn't have. I would have done it more. I was a full participant in my own obsessions. I'd write letters, or rather essays, that I was not intending to send him in which I proved, through detailed psychological and spiritual analysis, that I really understood him, the core of him, far better than his girlfriend ever would. The thing is, the person I was analyzing was a construct in my mind, a part of myself, really. But since I was never planning on discussing these delusional dissertations, I was convinced the construction was more real than the ambivalent person who showed up for a beer now and then. He'd recommended a fantasy novel series to me, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, and I read thousands of pages, imagining him as the hero. We were journeying together as I rode the bus, as I sat outside work for a smoke break, as I lay in bed at night. It became a very different kind of fantasy novel. In reality, we were not on an epic journey together. I was journeying further and further into self-deception and disconnection, all by myself, not having the self-awareness to notice I only ever pursued men who showed little interest in returning my affections. Because that way, I could avoid intimacy while having someone else to blame for the misery of being alone. I was still embarrassingly juvenile in regards to the opposite sex, but since I had a flowery vocabulary to describe my feelings, I thought they were somehow more evolved than my peers. I'd spent my teen years bailing on any developing relationship the moment it had the potential to get serious, in pursuit of the attention of men who were indifferent or even contemptuous of my designs on them. But in case you're wondering, my relationship with my dad is just fine. 
My romantic struggles started when I entered grade three, and I was horrified to realize that, over the summer, without my consent, the girls had decided to start liking boys, like more than a friend. This kid, Ed, who sat at my table, lent me his eraser and then told me I could keep it. This led Jess, another girl at my table, to squeal at me at recess, He likes you! I was horrified. Other than my sister teasing me about wanting to kiss the mouth-breathing boy next door she knew I did not want to kiss, as sisters are prone to do, the very idea that I could actually like or be liked by a boy was preposterous and somewhat revolting. I was a child! I was already starting to get the sense, assisted by my teacher's humiliations, that I was on the idiosyncratic side, but I'd be damned if fitting in required me to consort with snotty-nosed boys. So, I responded to this by going out of my way to be exceptionally rude to this Ed whenever he spoke to me. Not one to do anything halfway, I extended this treatment to any boy I had to interact with, from the other kids in my drama club to even my male cousins, having to have my nails pulled out of the backs of one of them over Easter dinner. I was soon put on a no-carpool list by the other theater moms, well, at least the ones with boys, to the frustration of my mother who actually bought me a book called How to Be Friends with a Boy. It didn't work. I'm still not sure what it was all about. As I said, me and my dad were pals, and I liked my parents' adult male friends, so it wasn't an anti-male sentiment. Maybe it was an uneasiness that I was expected to participate in these mock courtship rituals that I had absolutely no interest in or any idea how to navigate. Now boys couldn't just be people anymore. They became challengers in a game I had not consented to play. Neither had they, really. It was mainly make-pretend on the part of the other girls, but I didn't know that. This is a dynamic I continued to struggle with until I discovered alcohol to override these anxieties. How does one behave with the possibility of commodification? of worth being measured by whether some other person on the list of possible mates deems you worthy. At a point, I couldn't just attack every boy who tried to talk to me, nor could I bow out of the game altogether. Not only was I baffled by romance, early puberty made it so my sexual development became linked to shame, rejection, and what I believed would be a gruesome death. It's almost like my childhood mortal terror changed form as my body did. I had the crummy luck of getting my period when I was nine years old, almost ten. My body became an adversary I don't think, even now, I've fully made amends with. Suddenly my skin is erupting, my butt is protruding, my hair is frizzing, and I keep waiting for my parents to go to bed so I can sneak into the TV room to watch scrambled porn on mute. Bluish-green body parts mashing together in bizarrely arousing arrangements. This new activity and the salacious touching associated, not understanding why I was compelled to do this, being, well, a child, and being far too bashful to tell my mother about any of this, 
led me to believe that I had contracted AIDS. Now, I was a little iffy on the details of what AIDS was, but it was the mid-90s, and I did know everyone was talking about being careful not to catch AIDS, and it was a sexually transmitted disease that made you die a horrible death if you didn't use protection. How was I supposed to protect me from me? That sexually transmitted meant from another person was beyond my childhood comprehension, I reasoned I had transmitted it to myself with my obscene late-night activities, and how heartbreaking it would be for my parents to find out that because of my filthy habit, they would have to watch me wither away. I had already started breaking out in lesions, at least. That's what I was convinced some of my acne was. It was only a matter of time before I became pallid and ghastly like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, and then my body would just shut down. It would be the end, just because I couldn't keep my hands off myself. I was disgusting. I deserved to die of AIDS. It was around this time that I started to binge eat my feelings, such as the mortification of having given myself AIDS and having all the acne slash lesions that I was being rather uncreatively teased about. There were schoolyard discussions of playing connect the dots on my face and did someone order a pizza? Oh wait, that's Tara. Hardy ha 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 ha. It was true then and remains true now that as much as these jabs stung, nothing anyone ever said to me was half as bad as how I treated myself. Well, other than the ways I started literally treating myself. Whenever I was unsupervised at home, I would melt chocolate chips in the microwave with butter and eat it alone in my room, furtively with a spoon. If the chocolate chips were running low, I would make my own icing, which was basically just microwaved butter with icing sugar in a cup, eating it also by the spoonful until I felt sick but high all at the same time. The cups with chocolate and icing remnants were evidence of my gluttonous transgressions and needed to be dealt with cautiously, so I piled them up in my closet, waiting for an opportune moment to wash them out and put them away. My efforts at concealment were thwarted, however, by flies signaling my sins to my mother, who found and lined up all these cups, as if to give me perspective on just how much I was eating— similar to what my parents would do in my early 20s when they would compile all the empty wine and vodka bottles from my room on top of my bed in a sickening sculpture. This was almost as mortifying as if I had been caught spread out on the floor of the TV room giving myself aids to porn snippets. The shaming didn't succeed in divesting me of my behaviors. It just made me reconsider my tactics— I would hoard bags of chips instead of chocolate as to negate the need for a fly-attracting vessel. If I did make icing or melt chocolate, I would make sure to rinse the glass right away, or at least wrap it in a plastic bag and hide it somewhere less conspicuous. Stealing bits of change to buy chocolate from countertops about the house, and eventually my mother's purse, became its own little game— taking two quarters from a pile, then placing two nickels in their place so the volume of change seemed consistent, or taking one of each coin denomination from dollar to penny so the relative ratios would remain intact. 
the thrill of getting away with it, and my own self-congratulatory moments at my own cleverness in following these elaborate rules became part of the ritual, and almost as satisfying as the procured chocolate itself. I didn't see anything wrong with stealing morally as I rationalized that if I was able to meet my needs in a way that removed complications like dirty cups, and no one even noticed the negligible bit of money was missing, no one got hurt. This was one of the first incarnations of the if nobody knows about it, it doesn't count belief that carried me through relapse after relapse after relapse in my adulthood. So here I was, steadily gaining weight at a time where there was no body positivity in the culture, breaking out, suffocating in secrecy, lies, and self-loathing, when to my horror, I discovered that suddenly, I too liked boys. It seems I had caught that infection as well. I would have taken the AIDS. And I didn't just like them. I simultaneously believed that winning their approval would be my salvation and that I was completely incapable, no, undeserving of that approval, given how I looked and the ways in which I knew myself to be corrupted and contaminated. Still, I decided, seemingly at random, that this one ferret-faced boy in my class was now to decide my self-worth. There, it's on you, kid. My choice required a decent amount of cognitive dissonance because Ferret Boy rarely talked to me, and when he did, he was prone to making dirty jokes about people's mothers. That I might have made an ill-informed choice didn't really occur to me, as I was already too invested in the idea of him. This is benign enough, and common to kids with crushes, I'm sure. But in all this manufactured emotion, I channeled all the more complicated things I was feeling, like my real fear of not being accepted, of not being worthy of love, of not understanding human relationships, of general social trepidation, of my body's betrayals. These were all channeled into a kid who made fart jokes and still needed a babysitter. If I'd grown out of this, as most do after elementary school, or heck, even after high school, that would have been fine. But it became the blueprint from which I approached the idea of intimacy and romantic love well into my adulthood. Choose a person whose acceptance of you should, in theory, resolve all your worldly concerns. Reject actual relationship for the idealized one. Assure yourself all despair and dislocation will dissipate when the target of your desire is yours, and that they will unlock some dormant higher you that they and only they have the access keys to. In the rules of this game, you absolutely cannot save yourself. Oh, no. You will also have to make sure that your chosen savior will not want to or not be available to actually have a relationship with you, otherwise it's cheating. You will then justify your sense of alienation and emptiness and believe that you, on your own, are powerless to stop it. This whole process that I enacted again and again and again got very tangled up with what I believed love should feel like. Tortured, yearning, empty, otherwise you're doing it wrong. 
However absurd, this belief felt intuitively true, as supported by the Prince Charming narrative I grew up with. There was little serious discourse at the time regarding Disney's ethical responsibility towards cultivating empowerment in young girls. To be complete involves finding your other half. Someone will come along who sees the wonder in you that even you have failed to see, and in that witnessing, you will become who you were meant to be. You can be everything to someone, even if you are yourself a nobody. At the time, I enjoyed spouting off anti-religious sentiments, but when I targeted someone as a candidate for saviorhood, I was as fanatical and irrational as any cult zealot. One would think as I got older I'd grow out of this misplaced instinct for worship, but as I got older, the more I energized my erratic emotions with alcohol, and the more I was unavailable to actually be in a relationship. That first summer, back from Toronto, with all my fresh wounds, when I drank with Shane, I felt the illusion of intimacy, mediated by his unavailability. There was a safety in my one-sided romance. If I was unhappy, it was because of unrequited love, and it was all so gorgeously tragic. It certainly wasn't because I still hadn't dealt with Ren's death. It wasn't because I hadn't grappled with the death of my dream after my expulsion. It wasn't because I kept setting goals, record some music, finish my novel, get a better job, try to make a five-year plan, whatever it was, but I was too handcuffed to alcohol to do much about them. My life was the ice cream store and the pub. Life became very, very small. But that was okay. Life would begin when he gave me permission, when he finally saw me. Until then, I was off the hook. I didn't have to think too much about the fact that I had no particular plan except scooping enough ice cream to pay for mine and, well, his alcohol as well. It was difficult to diagnose this as a problem other than it being, well, once again, a smokescreen and avoidance tactic, but it didn't feel that way. It felt like an epic love story waiting to be told. I was not, in fact, in love, so love addiction wasn't quite right, though I was addicted to the feelings, though most of those feelings happened entirely by myself. It certainly wasn't sex addiction, as I was still a virgin. It wasn't codependency, as there was no co in the dependence. It is possible that since coming back from Toronto, I hadn't been drinking as liberally, being back at home with my family, and being on a tighter leash having been expelled from the school that they had paid for and all. It was important they believed the charade that it was my depression that had made me unfit to continue my studies, nothing I had done wrong. Nurturing this obsession was a kind of transference to a more subtle way of sublimating my emotions. Listening to Les Miserables and wailing on my own over and over and over again, a wash in agony, may have been aggravating to my family in its own right, but certainly not as upsetting as being in a drunken stupor all day. I was just a girl in love, and it was only when the brilliant Crazy Ex-Girlfriend television series came out that I saw my experience of romantic obsession mirrored in a charitable yet still hilarious way. 
The character in that series also had, mm, undiagnosed borderline personality disorder. However, before then, the best example of a woman pining over an unavailable man was Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. By comparison, I wasn't so bad. I wasn't boiling any bunnies. I was just mm, saving up my money to book a Mexican vacation that I would try to convince him to join me in when the imaginary other person I'd planned to go with would bail at the last minute. I was buying us extra shots at the pub to hopefully get him drunk enough to lower his defenses, and then I would make my move, which, in retrospect, was a little bit predatorial. Unfortunately, his tolerance was bafflingly high, much higher than mine, so the extra shots would only make me get all wobbly sloppy. I was just, uh, spending hours and hours at home, perfecting the portrait of him I had painted as the hero in that fantasy series he had recommended to me. It was how I imagined him to be. But of course I wasn't planning on telling him about this painting. Come on, that's a bit much. I certainly wasn't planning on giving him the painting. The bottle of wine I'd imbibed before going by the pub to drop in had other designs on my design. He looked at it and said, Wow, thanks. Leaned it up against a chair in the pub and went back to his pool game. The next few times I went to meet him after his shift, it seems he'd left early. His co-workers seemed to be suppressing something like a snicker. Maybe it was just a coincidence and it was all in my head. But for once, I don't think it was. So, in that chapter, even though I wasn't drinking nearly as much, it's clear that I wasn't quite all right in the head. I wanted to touch a little further on mental health awareness. At that time in my life, I really wasn't aware of how askew my mental health was. I did, however, have the belief that if I did have a mental health disorder, it was like having damaged goods branded into my skin. I believed psychiatric disorders to be chronic and incurable. I feel like what's missing in a lot of destigmatization campaigns is a message that recovery is possible from mental health as well as addiction, and that people who've had mental health struggles can have full, rich lives. It's all well and good for my landlord or bank teller to understand that mental illness is real, that having depression, for example, shouldn't induce any more shame on the part of the afflicted or fear on the part of their loved ones than someone who has asthma. Unfortunately, this message can get conflated with a kind of defeatism for the person with the diagnosis. Like, everyone around you should accept your mental illness, and so should you. So, yes, if you find out you have asthma, you ask yourself, what do I have to do about this so I can still live out my life as fully as possible? You don't agonize over what having asthma says about you as a person morally. Still... Self-knowledge is required. What things do you have to be cautious of? What protections do you have to have in place? Should you take medication? How can you make your loved ones aware so they can support you? The same would be true for a mental health diagnosis, like depression, again. Okay, so what am I going to do about this? 
not how can I train other people to accept my limitations so I can fall into a learned helplessness. Certainly not how am I going to get by. Like, seriously, who the heck wants to just get by or, oh goodness, learn to cope? What kind of an incentive is that? I'm not motivated by the idea of learning to cope with just getting by. I might as well roll over and accept my life of quiet or, in some cases, loud desperation now, if that's all I can expect to get out of trying. Now, please, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we should just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and stop making excuses. It is not to minimize the suffering and helplessness we do feel, and the mental distortions that make it difficult for us to see a solution. I'm just saying, between us, amongst people who are living with a mental health diagnosis or who suspect there might be something there, there needs to be more conversation about our strengths, about our victories, about recovery, about the ways that having to turn inward to find out what's not working can be such a precious gift that not everyone is given to really investigate our emotions, our spirituality, our purpose, what our vulnerabilities are and what makes our hearts sing. We can have a greater capacity for gratitude for the simplest pleasures because we have known a reality of not experiencing any pleasure. That's the kind of advocacy conversation I want to be a part of. Not to say, I am broken and pray to one day be fixed, probably by a doctor, but to say, I am a complete and complex human being and I have to try to find strategies to thrive within the body and brain that I have. We don't need the, it's not your neighbor's fault he has a mental illness. Don't stigmatize him. He's miserable already. He doesn't need you judging him, too. Which is what I get from some mental health awareness campaigns, even if they have the best of intentions. So this is why I'm doing this. Whether it's substance abuse or mental illness, I want to be part of a recovery conversation. And in that, I am supporting my own recovery. This is how I stay implicated. I do want you to know that I'm putting my heart and soul into this, and I want to help be a voice against stigma, to bring some humanity and perspective to often tragically misunderstood problems with just managing life. Sometimes the person who misunderstands the most is the person who is suffering, often in hiding, often in shame, often feeling hopeless or broken or like they're just a bad person. And I know I used to feel that way. If you do, I hope you'll reach out to someone you can trust. I'll link to some recovery communities in the show notes. And also, if you want me to answer your questions and respond to your comments, you can send them to me at interactivememoir at gmail.com. And also, though I still do appreciate any support that I've received in my buymeacoffee.com slash recovery page, what I would implore you to do as my call to action, so to speak, is share this. You might not even know if one of your friends is struggling, and maybe they just need to hear a voice that they can relate to. And maybe it won't be me, but maybe I can help push them in the right direction. I think we can all be part of this conversation. We can all be advocates for mental health and recovery together. And I know I say this every time, but I think I mean it a little bit more every time that 
You have so much more to offer this world than you even know. Until next week, make the most of it. <laughs>